Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I'm Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I am excited to talk with John Cook today about the Biblical Hebrew Verbal System as our second episode in our series on the verbal systems of the Biblical Languages. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. It's great to be here, Kevin. So just a little bit about John. He first became interested in biblical languages in Bible college when he realized that knowledge of Greek and Hebrew could provide a more direct understanding of the biblical text than modern translations. His enthusiasm for Hebrew led him on to an MA in Hebrew and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and subsequently to the PhD program at the University of Wisconsin. Along the way, he met his wife, Kathy, and grew their family by four boys. Since 2007, he has been a faculty member at Asbury Theological Seminary, where he regularly teaches intermediate and advanced Hebrew grammar, as well as other Semitic languages and Hebrew exegesis of a variety of biblical books. He lives in Wilmore, Kentucky, a stereotypical small town which is home to Asbury University and Seminary. When not engaged in studying aspects of the Hebrew verbal system, he's busy with his other passion, classic VWs, of which he has collected and restored several models. So to start off here, you know, obviously you've done a lot of work on the verbal system. You have the book came out, um, Time and the Biblical Hebrew Verb in 2012. And in that book, you you give a, a very comprehensive overview of the field. So can you just give our listeners an overview of of the biblical Hebrew verbal system for those who might not be familiar with the discussion, naming the forms, you know, what are the typical meanings or the debates out there for those forms? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, when we talk about the biblical Hebrew verbal system and particularly the debates about it, it really sort of centers on um, a portion of that system. Of course, we've got ways to give commands like the imperative and jussive, and and we have infinitive forms. But the debates really center around um, somewhat the participle, but also these four basic forms, traditionally known as the perfect form and the imperfect form, um, and then also a vav consecutive perfect and a vav consecutive imperfect, also known as vav conversive, somewhat depending on what you think the vav, which is this simple conjunction and, does to these forms. Um, in more recent literature, there's a tendency to instead sort of use the paradigm verb and refer to these as the katal, the yiktal, the vukatal, and the vayiktal forms. Um, and this allows us to a, a little more clearly see somewhat what the puzzle is about these, because there is a form katal and there is a form vukatal, and yet they seem to be completely different in their meanings, even though you just have this one letter, vav, added to the front of it. And similarly for yiktol and vayiktol. And so a lot of the, the puzzle about these goes back to the medieval grammarians who basically said this vav reverses the meaning of this form. And so you have katal on the one hand, along with vayiktol on the other hand, that are primarily, and this is widely understood, um, primarily function within a sphere of perfective aspects, uh, in other words, looking at situations as a whole, um, past time reference, and they also are, are, are largely restricted to real mood. In other words, talking about events that have actually happened, or think of it as indicative mood versus subjunctive mood, um, if you're thinking in terms of classical categories. And on the other hand, we've got this odd pairing of yiktol and vukatal, 
um, which seem to be formally related to this other pair that are wholly within the domain of non-past tense, um, imperfective aspect. In other words, looking at events in progress unfolding and irreal mood, talking about the future or um, the, one's ability. In other words, not real events, but events that are somehow cast in the potential uh, timeline, so to speak. Um, and so a lot of the debate emerges over how we deal with this conundrum. Does the Vav change the meaning of the forms or does it not? And, and how exactly are these forms related to one another? So then just to clarify, so part of, part of the issue then is, is morphological, right? Just how, how do we, when we approach two forms that look the same, how do we analyze them? Are they related? Are they not related? Is that, is that a fair understanding of, of what you're saying? Yes. And in fact, a lot of the modern debate emerged from precisely the questioning of whether or not um, the medieval starting point, the assumption that Vayiktol and Yiktol must somehow be related to each other and Katal and Vukatal must also be related to each other. Uh, it's a questioning of that. And in fact, um, this is why a lot of the modern debates have really emerged from uh, initially the historical comparative linguistics that pushed back on that and said, well, perhaps judging from other Semitic languages, there are more than one yiktol. Uh, and so perhaps we ought to see these as distinct verb forms. And this debate sort of continues to some degree uh, to today, um, particularly in the issue of if that's the case, do we inherently have to take a historical approach to the verb system or can we simply talk about homonyms and, uh, you know, or are we forced to simply say these have to be the same because they look the same? Right, right. So maybe it would be helpful at this point then to talk a little bit more concretely about each of these forms. So, so like the yiktol form, right? So you said it's it's um, you know people have described it as imperfect or imperfective with this form and, and the katal form. What are the debates going on about these forms? Is it generally accepted? You know what their what their meanings are, or are we still you know going back and forth on on the exact meaning? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's it's a, it's a little bit of both because there's a sense in which um, people reading the Hebrew Bible are are you know you read enough Hebrew Bible and and you get an idea of what passages mean, and of course meanings for individual words are always to some extent at least context dependent. Obviously, we can't say they're completely context dependent, or we wouldn't need the word except as a placeholder. So we want to be able to sort of dig down and talk about what is the contribution of that verb form to that context. But to the degree that we can sort of take a rough estimate, there is a sense in which um, there is an ongoing competition with regard to what is the primary contribution of that verb form in a given context. Is it in the sphere of tense, distinguishing events as in the past, in the present, in the future? Is it primarily in terms of how we how the speaker or the writer chooses to portray an event as either a whole that can't be interrupted by another event or sort of the equivalent to English progressive. I have been, you know, going to town or, you know, something like that where you can actually interrupt it with another event. Or are we instead dealing with primarily a distinction between mood where we have a way to talk about events that are in some sense real or have already occurred 
versus events that are in some way potential but have not yet occurred. Um, and so this this sort of uh, is is the underlying debate to all of this. And and the reason that there's that there's um, I think one of the one of the ways in which the debate is often perceived as uh, sort of overly cerebral and arcane and not really Im imperative to anything important, such as learning to read Hebrew and, and study the Hebrew Bible. It, it's because of the fact that, as, as we all know from the languages we, we natively use, you can use di different forms in different ways, and it's often difficult even for native speakers to distinguish those nuances. So if I say, I will go to school now, am I saying, this is in the future, I'm going to school, or am I really putting the emphasis on I intend to go to school? And one of those we would want to classify more in terms of tense, and another one we want to classify more in terms of mood, but either one in an English translation might serve the purposes of expressing what, say, Yiktol might be portraying for us in a given situation. And so there's a certain degree in, a degree to which the, the ways in which we interpret allows us enough flexibility with forms that um, whether we say it's tense, whether we say it's aspect, whether we say it's mood, we're sort of going to come out to the same location, but we arrived there at some very different ways. That's helpful. So then would you say then that the some of the issues that are going on in the discussions are not about then the like interpretations of the form, but actually about just how we get to that interpretation? Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I think I think to an extent it is. I think on the one hand, the the debates really largely are what theoretical starting point do we uh, begin with? And some would advocate we need to start with a semantic theory. Others would argue we need to use cognitive linguistics or discourse approach. Um, others would say we we should be doing things diachronically, looking at the history and the development of these forms. Others would say, no, we need to strictly look at what's in the text and understand how the, the users of this language at that time would have understood it. So there's a lot of that debate. Um, at the other end, the debate is largely an issue of how consistently are we applying the results to the text. And so there still is a sense in which if we sit, sat down long enough, we would reach some disagreements if we applied it to the same text. And in fact, um, at Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting in way back now in 2014, um, the organizers of the Linguistics and Biblical Hebrew session put together a particular session that pitted several of us against each other in terms of show how your theory works on 1 Samuel 1 and 2, the, the story of Hannah and the song of Hannah uh, that takes place in those chapters. And it really was rather eye-opening because, you know, there was a, a healthy question and answer time in which it was, well, how, how consistently can you describe these verb forms? And how how consistent are you with with applying that meaning across the board and how many of those verbs do you do you does your theory account for um and some some answers i won't name names or anything some answers came out a little bit more ad hoc like well you know that is that's a peculiar verb form to use there that's not what i would have expected according to my theory and so i don't know maybe this is what's going on and of course we're all going to face those marginal examples like that 
And Edward Sapir famously said, all grammars leak. So we're not expecting to get, you know, 100% success rate. We're always going to have some that we puzzle over in an ancient language. But the question becomes how coherent and how comprehensive one's theory is set side by side with another in a translatable form um, that, that emerges from their theories. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, that's a huge point, when, especially when you're dealing with a dead language. Because, you know, with, with English, if someone comes up to me and says, oh, I have this analysis of your, your uh, past tense form, and, and turns out it's, it's not past tense, and, and you know, I, I have intuitions about, you know, the interpretation of, of some of these forms. And so you can't just, like, tell me, you know, oh, no, it should be understood this way. But, but, but in biblical Hebrew, you know, it, it, the, the direction is, is very much going the other way, you know, where, where our theories are actually informing the way we're reading the text because we don't have intuitions to, you know, to, to fall back on, right? And I, and I think that's, that's uh, yeah, that's, that's huge, you know, just hearing you talk about, um, you know, people wanting to fit, you know, certain things into their theory because, not because the text is is wanting that but because their theory wants that um i mean it, it's a unique problem for us studying biblical hebrew and and any dead language yeah and i yeah i mean i i tell my students all the time you know the bloomfeldian school of linguistics back in the 40s said you know accept everything a native speaker says in their language and accept nothing they say about their language because <laughs> there's a sense in which the intuition is so important about we know how to use language correctly because it's our language. It's, it's what we're native speaker of. And linguistics has come to rely very heavily on that intuition. And so the question, to me, one of the foremost challenges that, that really propelled me into the study of the Hebrew verb is exactly this question. How do we know that that's how that ancient form should be understood and what recourse do we have in absence of native speakers because we can't just drum up some ancient israelites and ask them how they were using their language um, we have to find other means and i think this is why linguistics becomes so important because linguistics gives us these large typological databases where we can ask the question not what would the ancient Hebrews have thought about using this system, but rather is our construction of this system and the way the verbs work and interact with one another, is it, is it something that is believable in terms of what else we know about human language? I mean, one of the reasons why the modern debate emerged out of the medieval understanding was precisely the question of credibility that this simple little vav would change the semantics of a verb form so radically. And so the question became, I don't know any other languages like that, where just this simple vav does such drastic things to the form. Is there another explanation? Yeah, yeah. So that's helpful. So so maybe I can summarize really quickly, like, where we are. <laughs> um, so so we, we've talked about the current issues. And, and in what I've heard you say is some of the issues revolve around methodology, whether we, you know, take a... Uh, typological approach, uh, more semantic approach, discourse approach. Some of the issues are are you know debates about what these forms mean, right? Like, and and then how that should or should not you know inform how we read the text, right? Um, you know, ideally, like our our theory should inform how we read the text, but but when when uh, our grammar is leaky, then we have to you know improvise. Um, so so uh, is that fair to say that that's where the, we are now as a field? 
Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I mean, uh, I, I would I would add this in terms of where we are as a field. Um, I think we're very much. I mean, it's almost a given. The, the 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 debate about the Hebrew verbal system is not that new. It really is, you know, a couple hundred years old at best. Um, and it really is in tandem with the developments in linguistics. First, historical comparative uh, in the 19th and early 20th, and then the emergence of you know modern linguistic uh, as a science. And even now, I, I, I'm astounded when I think to myself, and maybe it's me just getting older or something, but like when I started studying the Hebrew verbal system um, back in the last century, um, I was still calling on some of the primary textbooks or and first statements on these matters. I would go back to Comrie Aspect 1976 and Comrie's book on tense 1985 and, and Palmer's also Cambridge textbook series on mood and modality only came out in 2001. And these were sort of like the first Fourier's into, into the whole realm of tense aspect and modality within linguistics. So it still is relatively newly studied in linguistics. And so I think for the field, more than anything, we're still sort of assimilating these insights and, and there's still things to be discovered. I mean, I think a lot of the times, and I think it's the posturing of the debate uh, is, is that each of us that have worked on it claim that we've solved the whole thing when the reality is, you know, when, when push comes to shove, there's plenty of things to still be, uh, studied. And one of the, one of the final papers I gave at SBL just after my dissertation, sort of summarizing various facets of it, I basically ended and there was a bit of a astounding uh, reply to it. Uh, people were astounded that I basically said, well, here's some areas that still need to be worked on. Are there any volunteers? Because there's so much still to understand about that verbal system. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So so along those lines, what do you think is needed for, for us to progress as a field? And and how do we decide between these different competing theories and analyses? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I do think going back to the example I mentioned, the, the meeting that we had in 2014 comparing different analyses, um, that to me, that's where my priority is sort of shifted. And, and in fact, in an article uh, back in 2016 talking about current issues in the field, I essentially pushed in the direction of, of we really need to start working out our theories in actual texts so that we can see not only the way verbs interact with their context, but how different verbs interact with each other within a given context. So often, and, and I'm, I'm one of these as well, when I wrote my, my dissertation and, and when I went on to write the book, I did the thing that a lot of, a lot of uh, people writing in the verbal system do. They go and they find GKC and Walt Keown O'Connor and other lists in grammars. And of course, GKC is, is well known for listing all the oddities. And, and somehow we try to say, okay, well, all of these belong to this Katal form or this Vayiktol form. And we need to come up with a single explanation that encompasses all of these. And, and it really is an uphill battle in some ways. We need to, to, we, I don't think we would attempt to do that with modern languages that we're more familiar with, where we would simply say, well, all the uses of English will, I'm going to just summarize them in one neat package. It wouldn't be a neat package. It could be used for so many different things. And so we need to contend with that complexity. And I think the best way to contend with that is by looking at it in, in specific texts. And this helps us both with 
the context, and also, of course, with this issue of the complexity of the dating of the biblical text, which has come to the forefront in, in past years, and the question becomes, can we even talk about the verbal system of biblical Hebrew as a whole, or do we need to talk about late biblical versus other? And do we know where late biblical Hebrew is, is found in the Bible and, and early biblical Hebrew? So there's all those things sort of alert us to the complexity that talking in broad strokes is fine and good, but at the end of the day, we need to start applying that th those theories to discrete texts in a way that can be comparable to ask the question, which theory accounts most comprehensively and most coherently for the forms we find in the text? Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say is we need to get back into the data. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I mean, just as much as we can. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's huge. You know, in we we discussed this, um, you know, with with Nora, um, just the importance of building your semantic theory in tandem with the data, and I think it's it's easy to build a theory if you don't have the data, <laughs> um, but but. That is, uh, you know, it's obviously not what we're after, right? Um, but but it's true that you know we we can build a neat theory, um, but you know at the end of the day, like it's only as good as it reflects the data. Um, so so let me ask you this: I mean, we've touched on this like modern linguistics discussion. Um, so this is something that I think you know um, you seem to be a big proponent of, you know, bringing modern linguistics into this discussion and it's it's something that really hasn't been done um very much before you know because i mean for whatever we i mean part of it as you mentioned is is you know the the field of linguistics is is quite new modern linguistics um but but part of it too is that you know biblical biblical scholars aren't normally linguists right they they go to seminary um, and and they they learn about grammar, but not they don't really do linguistics most of the time. So so to, can you explore that idea a little bit more? Like why is it important that we we learn you know modern linguistics and then use that as a tool for for the study of the the verbal system? Yeah, yeah, I. I think, well, one of the points I mentioned that we got into earlier is this idea of a lack of native speakers. And so I think linguistics gives us a necessary rigor um, to sort of do that. I mean, to, to my mind, and maybe this is a crude analogy, but I think it's helpful. Um, the, 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 the pushback that, that sometimes um, scholars give and students give to all this linguistic jargon, and admittedly, it, linguistics is not the simplest field to step into. Every field has its lingo, but, uh, you know, linguistics may be more than its fair share. Um, but the pushback is, well, gee, you know, I mean, I can interpret the text. And I can just treat it like a tense system or treat it like a mood system or whatever general notion I've, I've been taught. Uh, and often that's what it goes back to. What I've been taught still works for me. So let's just keep it like it is. Um, to me, it's, it's, it's almost the equivalent of saying, look, I've dug up a pot or two on a dig in Israel. Why do I need all this scientific rigor of, of, you know, grids and, and doing proper archaeology? I mean, I can find some things in the ground and we can talk about them. And, and, you know, the question becomes, well, would we not want that level of scientific rigor for something like digging up the remains of ancient Israel? And, and in like form, I think, Traditional grammar has taught people to be able to read and translate, but has it really taught us to understand the grammar in a way that in any 
uh, semblance approaches that of a native speaker. And I think linguistics gives us the rigor necessary to approach it as a system, to attempt to explain how that system functions as such, and, and to be able to understand it at a deeper level than simply, and now I know how to translate this verb into my native language. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's really helpful. So I, I think one of the like issues people have with linguistics, like you said, is, you know, the terms, right? Like, you know, some of these linguistic articles are, are just kind of ridiculous. If, if you really dig, dig down, I mean, they're just, uh, yeah, but, but, but l let me ask you this. I mean, part of it, I think is which kind of linguistics, and you mentioned this earlier as well. Um, you know, we have discourse, we have, you know, cognitive, we have, um, you know, the functional, which is kind of cognitive, kind of not. And we have uh, formal semantics and uh, generative, uh, you know, syntax, like all these things. So what, what do you say to people if they want to start, you know, into the, the biblical Hebrew verbal system and they want to say, hey, I, I, I want to study modern linguistics. I want to see how that infects the theory. Like, where, where do you where do you go and what kinds of subfields in linguistics are most important for this discussion? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a there's a wide array, of course, and not every theory is quite as difficult to get into as others. I mean, I still pick up formal semantics textbooks with some fear and trepidation at all of the lingo in there. Um, you know, so, and, and I think this is some degree dictated which directions people have gone. There's been a heavy emphasis on discourse linguistics, which is a little easier to enter into than some of these more formal fields. Um, you know, I tell students who are interested in, in verbal systems that almost, that, that a really beginning, beginning starting point is to pick up almost any current linguistics introduction. And you're going to have some section that introduces you to semantics. And at the center of semantics uh, is verbal systems, tense, aspect, and mood and modality. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, I think it was John Lyons in his, in his, you know, sort of famous 1977 semantics. He goes, you know, the verbal system really proves that everything holds together, which apparently was, was a famous French structuralist dictum of the, of the early 20th century. Uh, I mean, you can't really explore the verbal system without exploring so much else of the grammar. And in like fashion, almost any introduction is going to lead you into those, uh, those issues of semantics. And, and there's a number of, of good books that pick up from there. And, and honestly, even the classics like Comrie's Cambridge textbook on aspect and his other one on tense, are really good starting points because honestly they read as 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 aimed for the educated but non-linguist sort of audience and so i think that those are helpful starting points uh you can't really stop there but it becomes sort of a stepping stone to then entering into the discussions that are taking place in biblical hebrew where a lot of these ideas get expand expanded on and expounded um, but you then can sort of step into that world of that debate in, in, with some general understanding of these notions um so yeah those i mean the starting points are are fairly widely available because there is a fair amount of agreement within linguistics as to what aspect is, what tense is, what mood and modality is. Uh, you know, they may have arguments at the finer levels, but it's not as though linguists are as widely divided as we are on biblical Hebrew with respect to the parameters that we're talking about. Yeah, that's 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 a great point. So so basically pick up a, an introductory semantics textbook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's the place to start. <laughs>
Yeah. So, so um, I, I want to shift gears now and talk a little bit more about your specific analyses. Um, so just just to take two forms, I mean, the, the two, you know, big forms in the system are the Catal form and the Yuktol form. Um, so so can you just explain to to us, you know, in your system, what does the Catal form mean and, and why do you have that analysis? Yeah, so, and this is a good illustration. These two forms sort of nicely illustrate not only my analysis, but how I sort of have approached how how to get to that analysis, how to justify that analysis. So on the surface of it, you know, um, I think it's been a surprise to some people that my analysis is very conventional. I still hark back to like, uh, Avald in 1879 and saying, well, we have perfect and we have imperfect, uh, you know, tweak those a little bit and we can talk about perfective aspect for Katal and we can talk about imperfective aspect for Yiktol. Now, I think there's two important distinctions, however, from that classical theory. Um, the first is that I've, uh, uh, that I use, um, typological data to attempt to argue the case. So for instance, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, at least by halfway through your first semester of Hebrew, most people have caught on to the idea that when I combine the Katal conjugation, when I use a, a, a root that's actually a stative that has a pattern like, uh, you know, kaved to be honored. And if I put that into Katal and, and I have this ambiguity here, is kaved an adjective? heavy or is conveyed a verb and notice that most of the time we're we're going out of a context we're just going to translate that you know he is heavy now it often means he was heavy but it's often the context that's suggesting that for us by contrast if we took something like you know a paradigm verb like pakad to visit that gets used a lot or katav to write um, in the katal we're going to automatically understand that as something in the past out of context and What's interesting is that typologically, this is one of the features that across a wider range of languages seems to show up as a major distinguishing feature between verbs that are primarily a spectral, perfective aspect, versus those that are past tense. Um, and, and so I sort of use that in my book to argue that the katal is actually perfective aspect, and I contrast that, in, in this case, with the vayiktol, by saying, by contrast, the Vayiktol doesn't have these present tense interpretations of forms like kaved or katon or other stative verbs. And so we can actually draw on that typological data to sort of make a case. Um, and, and my case is similarly made that Yiktol is the imperfective, or if you want to use Walkin O'Connor's terminology, even we can talk about it as the non-perfective, but that doesn't really help us with comparing in typological data, because linguists don't talk about non-perfective nearly as much as they just talk about imperfective. But these two seem to cohere in systems quite regularly. In fact, uh, there's a landmark article by Joan Bybee and Ostin Dahl, who each did their own sort of wide-scale typological studies in the late 80s, early 90s. And in their article, um, The Creation of Tense and Aspect Systems, I think it was called, they basically said, you know, almost every other language we encounter begins with this basic and fundamental division between perfective aspect and imperfective aspect. Are we presenting events as, as these whole uh, happenings or, or something in progress? And so to me, that lent a lot of credibility to the idea that, well, you know, the, the, the earlier scholars weren't 
far off from the whole notion of this is sort of the core opposition within here. However, one of the things that I add to that that sort of helps clarify it, I think, is, of course, the old debate used to be, well, then if it's all aspect, then what do you mean? Can we not talk about tense? How do we actually discuss things that are past, present, or future? And Anson Rady made a great comment in one of his articles. He said, you know, the, the ancient Hebrews verb system was sufficient enough to tell his son when to go milk the cow. Uh, in other words, we still can use language in usable ways, even if it's a spectral system. And, and, uh, Carlotta Smith, um, in, in, in the few years before she died in the early 2000s, had done a number of studies on what are typically known and widely known as tenseless languages, uh, American Navajo language and Mandarin Chinese. And essentially, she says, it's really a very predictable system. There are some default interpretations for these aspectual forms. And so what I sort of add to it is to say, yes, why is it that we can often treat Katal and Yiktol as past and non-past? because that's sort of their default temporal reference. Because just because we don't have tense as an inherent part of these grammatical constructions doesn't mean we have the we have an inability to talk in terms of events happening in time. And so if we understand that these have these default interpretations, and again, typological studies have seemed to show past time and perfective aspect are very closely wedded, uh, sometimes hard to even disentangle, um, then we're going to be equipped to talk about how the system as a whole serves all the needs of its writers, regardless of, of identifying individual constructions as either all aspect or all tense or all mood. Yeah, yeah. So, so then what really makes your analysis unique is this emphasis on the, the typological data is is one thing um and then you know the other part of trying to account for these other uses with um you know with with one meaning but with one meaning that you know can be used in different kinds of contexts right for different interpretations is that is that a fair assessment yeah and i i that is very that is a very fair assessment and i i think that is to my mind at least that's what what has been sort of the strength of the theory i, I think one of the reasons why the field has interacted with my theory you know to, to some degree is is that it has sort of set off a course into typological study that hadn't really been taken prior as a means of validation of the theory. Is this a believable thing? Does this fit with all this wealth of data we now have? And again, prior to the 19, late 1980s, 1990s, we didn't have that data at our disposal. So this isn't really a critique of what people had done earlier as much as this is this new information that we're now able to take part of. But yeah, there's this issue of then that's fine and good as far as it goes. But now what do we do with the messiness of it, of different genres, of different types of discourse, of different dates of texts? And we need some way to sort of contend with that. And it's one reason why I've sort of taken a historical approach is to allow some sort of way to explain the emergence of new meanings along the way. And Suzanne Fleischman made a great observation in her 1990 uh, book on discourse and narrative, or I guess it was on narrative discourse. 
talks about how the meaning of a form and its role in the discourse sort of have a symbiotic relationship, whereby you use this form because it's suitable to the discourse, but likewise, the more you use it in that discourse, the more it sort of informs the meaning of the form. And as that happens, the meaning can, can develop into new or secondary meanings. And so, you know, one of the ways in which I've interpreted the Vakatal form is that this is, in fact, sort of a newer meaning for the Katal form in the irreal mood realm due to its use in the context of, you know, conditional law code, which is so prevalent in the Bible and elsewhere in the ancient Near East. So then uh, I guess one of the the challenge questions, right? So if if you say that the Katal form we have is perfective and the Iktol form is imperfective or non-perfective, do we find perfective Iktol forms? I think you you touch on this in your book, and, and how then do we account for these kinds of interpretations? So, yeah, so I, I assume you're talking about like yiktol forms that are past perfective. Or yiktol forms, yeah, past or future, you know, where you have, you know, a, a telic event that ends, we'll say. Yeah. And in a sense, I sort of take two different approaches to that. And, and now, now, you know, now you're leading me into those areas where I'm I, really the, the underlying code is, hey, folks, come on, get on board, do some research in these areas, solve some more conundrums for us. You know, uh, the, the one, when, when we arrive at Yiktol forms that look exactly the way we would expect a Katal form to function in the past sphere, um, per, you know, telic action, event comes to an end, it's perfective. Um, a, a lot of scholars, and I think this is one of the things that has, has sort of been accomplished in the field. Um, there's only a minority of scholars left, to my mind at least, that still would like to reject the comparative Semitic data that would suggest to us we have two prefixed verb forms. We have a yiktol and a yiktol, or they've fallen together into yiktol. And, and so we need to distinguish these as homonyms. One of them is really the ancestor or the progenitor of vayiktol. So when we talk about vayiktol, I like to talk about it as a, as a, an inflected form. That vav on the front seems to have become conventionalized and it's there permanently. It's the narrative uh, verb of choice. And yet, the progenitor shows up now and again in odd, quirky places. And one of the places has, has traditionally been in poetry and poetry that may or may not be archaic. And so scholars started to point to this is this old prefix preterite, they'll call it, or an archaic prefix preterite. And so what they're basically arguing is it looks like a perfective verb. It acts like a perfective verb. Indeed, it is a perfective verb, and it is the ancestor of our vayiktol form. To me, that, that, that conundrum goes back all the way to 1997 when I started working on the verb system because somebody said, how do you know that that's what it is? And my answer is, by eliminating any and every other possibility. And unfortunately, that's not a great situation to be in. You have to basically pin down everything else so clearly that you can say, well, this can't be anything else other than this. But that seems to be the the farthest I've been able to take it. And so there are times in which I will talk about, well, this may or may not be a prefix preterence, but, you know, I can't prove it. So so just to, yeah, kind of restate what you're saying, the the tack you you kind of take towards approaching these sorts of questions is, is a historical one, right? So if I have a leaky bucket, I'm going to fix it with the 
the historical patch, right? In, in your case, is that? Yeah, I think so true? because I, I ascribe to the view that um, we can describe a system on the surface of it, but in linguistics, we really don't have any other explanations other than historical explanations. Because of course, language doesn't change in any sort of planned manner. Nobody sits down and goes, "Let's. This is what we're going to do with the language," you know. Um, and so. When it comes to, I can describe this, but then when I start to ask the question, well, well, that's weird. Why would that be like that? The only real recourse we have is to say, well, let me show you what it was before and knowing what it was before. However, I would caution with respect to this, homonymy is, is not inherently a diachronic um, phenomenon. I mean, we have homonyms all the time in language, words that look exactly the same, but they mean to two totally different things. Um, read present tense and read past tense. They look exactly the same. R E A D. Uh, and so there is a sense in which the historical explanation is only a way of bolstering the argument that when we see these two forms and they look like they have completely different meanings, they are indeed two different forms. Uh, and so it's still a synchronic argument on a level. One wouldn't need the historical evidence, but certainly the historical evidence helps support the notion that I know you're looking at yiktol and yiktol, but they're two different yiktols. Right, right. So if this is the kind of explanation we're going to give, why why not call katal past and yiktol future and then say, you know, we have these other uses maybe historically or or account for them in some other way, right? So you've chosen to say perfective and imperfective is is the primary, you know, contribution of these forms. And then we're going to account for, you know, the other that might that might be harder to account for through, you know, other ways. Um, so wh why, why not start with past and, and future? Well, I think I think there's several reasons why. Um, one of them, one of them is quite simply, I think that calling them perfective and imperfective rather than past non-past accounts for more of the odd forms than than the alternative that's that's one but but more importantly um when i look at katal as a perfective form or i look at yiktol as an imperfective form I, i'll be honest i'm not i'm not looking at it in terms of gee, I'm pinning it down and I'm boxing it in and it's got to be this form. I'm really thinking, thinking of it through the lens of typological studies. What I'm really saying when I say Katal is a perfective form is Katal is most like what the typological studies consistently identify as perfective verb forms. Those perfective verb forms may vary in their own, uh, among themselves even in terms of the range of meanings they might have, but by calling it perfective, it enables us to do what I think is the most proper comparison. That is comparing it with languages that have perfective verbs, not languages that have past tense verbs. And so it allows us to, to sort of set like like forms alongside each other cross-linguistically. Um, and so I, to me, that really is sort of the, the most important thing. And so it's funny because, of course, because my approach has comes across somewhat traditional, it's perfective and imperfective, I, I, I often have gotten pushback of, what, you mean they can't express tense? You know, no, 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 I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying these are like what linguistic typologists have called perfective and imperfective verbs. It's one reason why I sort of pushed back against Walt O'Connor's notion of saying, well, you know, there's a wide range of meanings for yiktol, so we shouldn't call it imperfective, we should call it non-perfective. 
And I feel like saying, well, yeah, but like nobody uses that term. Uh, <laughs> if we're going to do some comparison with other languages, why don't we just use the terms linguists use? And, you know, you go to something like, uh, you know, the World Atlas of Linguistic Structures, which is available online. And there's a wealth, wonderful wealth of resources. You'll find these terms like perfective aspect, imperfective aspect are thrown around very freely as sort of the stock terminology. I mean, and in a field where we already have too much lingo, let's not invent any more lingo and let's just, you know, use what the typologists use in order to make those proper comparisons. Okay, so 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 this is helpful. So I think the main reason, well, two two reasons. I think we keep coming back to these, right? So why we we should reject the tense analysis, in your view, is 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 one is that the the aspectual um, analysis just captures more of the data, and then it's typologically more viable. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I would say that, and 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 particularly, I would note the tense analysis faces one issue of 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 redundancy. Uh, you, you know, you're pushed to yet another sort of explanation for, well, then why is it that we have a past tense katal and we have a past tense vayiktol? Um, and, 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 you know, I've written on, on, on vayiktol extensively. We don't need to get into all of that, but I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary or it's best to put them on the exact same level because there are distinctions between them and, and they can't be made other than semantically to my mind. Things like their interaction with stative roots that suggest we can't have a system with two past tense forms because they don't both act like past tense forms. One acts differently than the other. Right, right. Yeah. And, and this does bring up, um, again, uh, the conversation I had with Nora, just that, you know, when when we are looking at these forms, you know, we, we do have to separate the the notional categories, the semantic categories from what the form is actually encoding. And I think I heard you say this earlier that you're not getting rid of all past tense interpretations of Katal, right? Um, so so it's not like you're saying that this notional category of Katal is never activated in our minds. Uh, this Sorry, the social category of past is never activated in our minds with Katal, but the the contribution of the form is perfective and that leads us to understand it as a past in certain situations and then in other situations not as a past right which is which is really actually what what we should expect right if if the contribution of the form is past then it would be odd if we had future interpretations is is, is that fair yeah no that that's very fair and i i, I mean you're you're that was a good point she made about notional categories because, I mean, and there's been some questioning, in fact, in linguistics as to whether these notional categories, they, they seem so sort of unhinged from actual form sometimes. Are they useful? And they do. They retain their usefulness. But at the end of the day, you're, you're right. We need to be talking about what katal means and what yiktol means. And, and, and you know, if, you know, if you asked me if push came to shove, do you, are you really attached to these labels? A part of me is like, no, I don't really care about the labels. The labels are useful for typological comparison, but beyond that, it doesn't matter. Um, Katal is Katal, and we, and we inductively analyze Katal and how it functions. But when it comes to justifying how it fits in the system of, with the other verbs, we're going to want some recourse to those notional notional ideas so that we can see the way the system works as a whole, that this serves these purposes, yiktol serves these other purposes, vayiktol, katal, etc. And they fit together in a system that's typologically believable or credible. Right, right. Yeah. So, so 
here's um you know we'll just kind of end with with a couple of questions more down to earth um so someone you know is, is approaching the verbal system and they say you know and, and i think we talked about this earlier um who cares right i mean i can read my bible right you know i know what the yiktol form means in this particular verse you know why do i need to do all of this extra digging in linguistics and all, all of this stuff. Why is this important for exegesis? And can you give it like a concrete example of how it is important? Yeah, I'm, I think um, I think probably the starting point I have with my students and, and, you know, your sort of skepticism that you've expressed is one that comes through now and again in real life from students who are forced to take Hebrew and Greek to go into ministry. Um, well, to be fair, I'm actually not skeptical. <laughs> I, no, I know. I know. You just voiced it, but you did a good job yeah. impersonating. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, I think there's, and, and my reaction tends to always be, uh, my immediate reaction, well, gee, do we really know what's there? So, I mean, one of the ways I think it, it, it helps is, and I've toyed with, with delving into this, and, and hopefully in the future I will get a chance to, um, the number of times I'm reading the Hebrew text of Psalms, and I look at an English translation next to it, and they're just acting as though these verbs are just all tenseless. We could just do whatever we want with them. We don't have to pay attention. So it's a vayiktol. We could treat it like a future. It's a yiktol. We could treat it like a past. There's a sense in which um, many of the translations are just ad hoc, ad sensum renderings of some of these poetic passages. And so my pushback tends to be, are we really getting all of the nuances that are there? Um, I think, you know, I mean, currently I'm working on the Baylor handbook, uh, um, jointly with Robert Holmstead on Isaiah 40 through 55. And of course the Exodus imagery comes up there again and again, but I think quite intentionally the author is playing with the Katal form by alternating back and forth between reference to the past Exodus and reference to what God is performatively saying, I am hereby doing with you in this new Exodus event. And we don't get that in translation, primarily because you have to make decisions in translation. And, you know, I, I think it was, I think it was George Steiner who famously said, you know, all translations are betrayals. I mean, you, you have to give something up. And so you really need to get into the text itself to grasp some of those nuances. So it becomes important, I think, for some of those questions of, of really keeping the questioning open about whether or not we're really understanding fully what we're reading. Um, and again, I, I, I waver back and forth because a lot of our students at the seminary here, um, they want, for lack of a better term, they want to hear exegetical magic tricks where, you know, suddenly I'm going to unveil that now that you know what Yixol means and that it's imperfected, you're going to discover something in this ancient text that nobody else has ever noticed up until this point. That's not going to happen so much. But the idea that we, the farther we get to understanding the range of meanings, the more sure we can be about what this text particularly means. And we can maybe find ways to be more consistent in our re reading of these forms rather than resort to what some of the translators do, which is just, well, I get the idea. I think the guy in the Psalms is talking about some, some past uh, adventure he had, and therefore we're just going to treat these all as past regardless of what the morphology looks like. I mean, that's not really an adequate way of doing it, even though it makes okay sense in English, you know, and so people just live with it. Yeah, well, well, I think the other problem is like, who's going to question you, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I have to say, there are times, I mean, I, I normally don't 
read the the Bible in English, but there are times when I when I do, and I'm and I just wonder like, how did you get there? But 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 that being said, that being said, most translations are you know very very accurate to the point that like you can understand them. You know, I personally like. I don't like translations, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't, and I do. I mean, I, I'm in the world of Bible translation. I want it to be translated to to as many people as possible. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, there is, there's always something, you know, that that just doesn't come across the same way. I don't mean to blast Bible translations. I mean they are very good. Again, it's almost a it's almost a similar situation as we have with beginning Hebrew grammars. Look, the older way still works okay, so let's just stick with it. When the reality is perhaps if we delved into this a little bit more, we'd discover nuances that we might have missed. Uh, even though the translations work well enough, um, what, what is it that we might be missing? We, we won't know until we dig in further and really explore it. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, we have to do the work to make the translations better, you know, because those translators are relying on the grammars that are being written and I, I can often look at a translation and say, oh, I know who you read. You know, I, I know I know what grammar you're following. <laughs> because, again, we don't have the native speakers. Great. So maybe just this one last quick question. Um, so you published your book, Time in the Biblical Hebrew Verb, back in 2012. Um, so are you, you, you said you're working on you know, kind of applying your theory, right, to Isaiah 40 through 55. Are you doing anything else on the on the verbal system that you can tell us about, and um, you know what what can we expect from you in that respect? Yeah, actually, um, there's a couple of exciting things that are that I'm just you know sort of diving into right now. I'm looking at a at a spring sabbatical starting officially in February. Really, it's already started uh, after after the fall term. Um, and one of my the central project for that is to work on a linguistic introduction to the Hebrew verbal system that's due uh, to be published with Baker Academic. It's intended to sort of fit within Cook and Homestead's um, uh, selection of grammars. Somewhere there is sort of the intermediate, intermediate slash advanced level to sort of, uh, and, and what distinguishes it from my book more than anything is precisely this shift towards let's illustrate how this works out in how this theory works on individual passages. And so it's going to have a, a plethora of different discourses, different passages to illustrate how the system explains how verbs are interacting with their context and with one another. Um, and then at the totally other end of that spectrum, just about two months ago, I was invited to write um, for a, um, I forget what the title is here, I believe it's called the Cambridge Handbook to uh, the Bible and Linguistics, and it's being edited by Stanley Porter up at McMaster University, and he's invited me to write the chapter on the Hebrew verb. And so essentially, um, that's due at the end of 2021 and is supposed to give sort of an overview of the field, what's going on, what's new and exciting out there, what's still undiscovered and unsolved. So, so sort of in tandem working still within the theory area and also within the application of, of my particular approach to the Hebrew Bible. Well, that's exciting. We'll uh, we'll definitely have to watch out for those and, and maybe get you back on the show for, for more talk on it. So that's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages podcast. Thank you, John, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>